Open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to make a confession. I'm going to be going to a lot of different scriptures this morning and made the decision not to put them all up on PowerPoint because it'll look like a strobe light, uh, as many as I've got coming. Um, but I'm going to re- reference these passages, make note of them, so you can go back and study them yourself. And this is kind of the anchor of, the, uh, of our message today, so that's why I'm giving you 1 Timothy chapter 1. We begin uh, our Advent season today. Advent. Adventus in the Latin means the coming. Um, Christians... The church, people who've been saved by Christ, look at the coming of Christ from two different perspectives. One is his his initial coming, the incarnation, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we celebrate. We look back to that event 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, came in the form of a baby and grew to be a man sinless and gave his life for sinners like us. That's one aspect of, of the coming that we look to. There's another part of what the church does, and that is looking forward to his coming again. Right? And those two perspectives are, are what we're going to kind of emphasize this Advent season as well. And we, what we want to do is reflect on what the outcome of both of those events are to our needs and God's provision for our, for our deepest needs. So we're going to do a little play on words to make the point, and hopefully it'll make sense. But clearly the church is waiting, W-A-I-T, for Jesus. It waited for Jesus then before he came the first time, although they didn't know why he was coming. They kind of thought political leader. But he was coming as the savior of the world. And uh, obviously we're looking forward to him coming again. But in the meantime, there is this thing we have to deal with. The reason why that waiting makes sense to us is the wait, W-E-I-G-H-T, of this world. And so we're going to talk about the specificness of those things that we have to carry or deal with or the, the oppressive things in, in our world. And today we're going to talk about, this is going to be a lot of fun, first day of Christmas, the weight of sin. All right? And you might be one of those people who've been in church long enough to say, okay, well, I got that. That's pretty much in me. That's one-on-one. Let's get on to something deeper and more profound. But I'm going to tell you that we can't. We don't have the luxury to move off the most easiest subject matter because it's the point of this season. It is the reason why uh, we are celebrating it. I'm going to make a confession personally. Um, The older I get, uh, I've been beginning to see some changes in me. Some are maybe visible. Um, I would say of my personality, I fight less than I used to, and I mean that in a good way, all right? I have less fight in me. I'm slower to respond to things. I'm I'm less idealistic. I I think think I'm more self-aware. But um, one of the things that I've noticed over the last few years is I'm more and more affected by trouble and pain about stories I hear in friends of mine or the world around us. I feel that more. let me give you an example. My wife watches a show periodically called Intervention. Okay? Intervention is a story of what seems like just train wreck lives who are now having people come alongside them and help them get over addictions and, and whatever other problems they have. I can't watch the show. I can't watch the show. It makes me sad. I can't see stories of people who've done nothing but hurt themselves and other people and just watch. I can't do it. I have to, I have to go watch Andy Griffith or something. Um, <laughs> Get my mind on something else. Um, I don't think I'm overwhelmed by it. I just think the overwhelming sense of sadness. You can't turn on the TV and see some other, what seems to be crazy people beheading folks in Syria and Iraq and just kind of move on. I, I, haven't, I just change the channel. I don't want to see that stuff. You uh, see the stuff happening in Ferguson and the responses of people, not just there, but all over the country, and I don't like to see that stuff either. You hear stories of 
crazy stories. That guy last year in Cleveland who held those three women hostage for 10 years of their life. I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear about it. You, uh, over the last couple of weeks, you hear about America's dad being accused of all sorts of things that totally change you, the impression of, of him. And uh, I don't enjoy those stories either. And if I just say, okay, let me just shut out the stories of, of out there. Some of the stories I hear here make me sad. You know, when I hear about people divorcing or not getting along or some people who I thought, man, they were totally tracking with Jesus and now they're gone. They're gone. They've kind of just checked out and they said, not me, not now. And it makes me really, really sad. And then there are moments when I look at me. So if I just get progressively closer to the center of this thing and I look at my own life in, in the mirror and I go, well, I'm not the man I should be either. The whole thing makes me want to go out in the garage and get distracted. You know what I'm saying? Just work on something. Take my mind somewhere else. And, and there's an overwhelming weight to what we experience. I uh, found an article this week that was kind of lamenting on the stories in our world. Let me just read to you a little bit of what they said. Make a point. A terrifying jihadist group is conquering and butchering its way across swaths of Iraq and Syria. Planes are falling out of the sky at what seems like a weekly basis. Civilians are being killed in massive numbers in the Israel-Gaza conflict. Others are falling prey to Ebola in West Africa. The world, in short, is falling apart. Now, that, that is true. It was the title that caught me. The title was this, what all this bad news is doing to us. And I just wrote down real quick, doing to us. Therein lies the problem. People see the problems out there. It's somebody else's issue. It's, it's got to be fixed over there, not here. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this thing called sin and the weight of sin and that it's not a problem out there. It doesn't just happen in other countries or other places where there's disagreements. The problem of sin happens in every human heart. And if we don't get at least a perspective of sin as the Bible describes it, then we'll make no sense out of Christmas. There'll be nothing to celebrate about Christmas and we'll twist it and morph it into what the world has kind of perpetrated on us, that it's just simply about food, fun, and family and, you know, watch the right movies and you'll have a great time and you'll skip the whole point, the whole point of, of this season. I've got my uh, car radio dialed to 999 for the last two weeks, 24-7 Christmas music. I would have never done that five years ago. Um, and I don't really particularly like all the new Christmas songs. You know, the ones that are dragging off of movie sets and things, but I do like the oldies. So White Christmas, Bing Crosby, right? By the way, little tip, number one selling single in history. Um, you learn lots of stuff at the church. There's one. Um, but I suppose if... Uh, that thing is so nice and warm because it's so sentimental, you know, it paints pictures in your head when you listen to it, Bing's got a great voice, all that stuff. But if you're talking about the point of Christmas, if you simply re kind of resist the temptation to think about all the sentimental things and just stuck to the point of Christmas and the reason for Jesus coming and why it should matter to us, you couldn't pick a more inaccurate title in the world. You should call it Black Christmas. And it's because of the sin issue. Let me show you how Paul looks at it in this passage in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is the point of this season. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. He goes on to say, of whom I am foremost. 
I love Christmas. I really do. I love the traditions of it. The boys set up the tree yesterday. That was awesome. We fixed lights all afternoon. That wasn't. Um, (laughs) But as great as they are, that's not the point. As great as all those things that we enjoy about being with each other and having memories of the past and creating new ones of the future, it's not the point of the season. Jesus came, according to Paul, Jesus came for sin and for sinners. And if he didn't come for that, then this is just a hollow season. And at best, at best, all it can be used for is to distract us from the pain and the misery and the mess. That's all you could use it for. Just give me, give me a, just a respite away from all the world stories and I'll go back to some happy place and watch old movies and I'll feel good for a little bit. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to save sinners and he's coming again to make things right. So we're not gonna miss the point of this Christmas season. We're gonna talk about it for a holiday that I think has been taken hostage um, by all the stuff and all the noise, we have to look at the problem because if you don't look at the problem closely enough, you will never ever celebrate God's solution for it. It will never be big enough. It will never get worship. It will never get the glory that he alone deserves. So we have to spend some time looking at something you might actually think you know all about already. Got it. Got the subject of sin. Move on. Give me something deeper, but we can't. We don't have the luxury just to skip the point of why Jesus came. So... Here's how John MacArthur said it. He said, to really understand the true beauty of Christmas is to understand the ugliness it cures. One other writer said it this way, I sigh with relief when I'm reminded that Advent isn't what so many of us think it is. We've been tricked by chocolate-filled Advent calendars and blissful Christmas pageants that gloss over the very real evil that makes the Messiah's coming so very necessary and so very loving and so very heroic. Advent isn't a holiday party. It doesn't pressure us to conjure up a hopeful face and ring bells and dismiss the foulest realities we face. Now get this. Advent isn't about our best world. It's about our worst world. I think we eat chocolate and put on the pageants because we don't want to face the worst. Advent is an invitation to plunge into the deep dark waters of our worst world, knowing that when we resurface for air, we will encounter the hopeful, hovering spirit of God. For when we dive into the depths of our worst world, we reach a critical point at which our chocolate and pageants no longer satisfy our longing for hope. And we are liberated by this realization. Indeed, the light of true hope is found in the midst of the darkness. There was a Puritan writer named Thomas Watson who went on to say this, Sin has turned beauty into deformity, and the wickedness takes more care to have its sin covered than cured. Men are much more prone to excuse their sin than they are to examine it, and so it's fitting that at a time of the year when men would cover their sin with the beauty of Christmas, that the covering would be torn off, but for a brief moment to to reveal the ugliness that is behind it all. That's what we've got to do today. We've got to talk about sin. As unpleasant as that might be, and as un-Christmas-like as you think it might be, it is the point. It is the point of Jesus coming. So let's not hide behind the beauty of Christmas. Let's take a few moments to just look at the ugliness of it. And I'm going to do what you might think is a little absurd. I'm going to define sin for you. Because most people would say, I got it. Got it figured out. But let's just be very careful with it. Our world has been very, very skilled in redefining sin ever since I can remember. Well, this is what it was. Uh, That's different. God didn't mean that. There's a new world now. It, this, is, this is now the, the worst evil, and it kind of morphs and ebbs by people's opinions and the way the world wants to, to live its life. But here's what you need to know. The word never changes, our God never changes, and he defines what is sin, okay? So here's the scriptures. 1 John 3, real simple definition. Everyone who practice, 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's the simple um, explanation to what it is. It is rebellion against God. It's living like there is no God. There is no law and it doesn't apply to you. There's no right or wrong and you're your own authority. That's what lawlessness looks like. That's what sin looks like. It's living outside of the boundaries that God has set for his people. It's going against what you know to be true because you know what's true because God wrote it on your heart according to Romans and you just go against it. Like you knew, but you did it anyway. Sin is living like you're in charge. I found this quote by John Bunyan. It's, it's pretty intense, but this is how he defines sin. Sin is the contempt of God's love and the rape of his mercy. Sin says, God, I know what you say and what you think, but I don't care. And I'm going to do what I want. It's turning your back on God's goodness. It's when we call God a liar, when the instructions and the commands, the imperatives of Scripture are given for our joy and our happiness, and we say, no, no, that's not true. He's got bad intentions. That's why he's given us law. It's the exact same thing that happened in the garden when Satan suggested to Adam and Eve that somehow if you have to avoid eating of that fruit, it's just God being mean and a tyrant and he's holding out on you. So that's what sin does. It accuses God of lying when his instructions were meant to bring us joy. Not to, not to make us hurt. So let's describe sin for a little bit. Let's get closer to it. Sin is pervasive. In other words, it's not a, just a chink in your behavior. It's not a foible. You know, a foible is a weakness in your character. That's not what sin is. Sin ultimately isn't even uh, doing bad things. Sin isn't just going against what God says. It's not just a description of your weaknesses. Those are symptoms Sin is the cause, and it comes from the heart. That's where sin comes from. It's authored here. Now, are those things sinful? Yes, but they come from a sinful place. I was uh, in urgent care a week ago Friday, which is a stupid name for something that takes five hours for a Band-Aid, by the way. (laughs) Fast med. Let's change that. Let's do a petition for that. Anyway, um, but I was in the waiting room and then in the procedure room for, again, almost five hours, and there was a lady there coughing, like you couldn't believe coughing. Like coughing, like everything was just, like her lungs were coming out. And the doctor came in to show me some tension. He goes, thank you for not coughing. Um, he was so sick of it. Now, let me just use it as an illustration. Was this problem, was the lady's problem her cough? No, because the cough is a symptom of something, right? Who knows what it is, but they need to get to the the root of the, the matter, and, and obviously when they do, the coughing will stop, and that's the same thing when it comes to what we do. There's a root of the matter. The Bible says it's the heart of a man and a woman. Sin has a source. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't come from without. It doesn't happen because you've been mistreated or, or abused. It happens because of in us, in us, there's a war with God going on. There's a resistance to truth and righteousness, and it exists in every man, woman, and child who has ever lived on the planet. Okay? It's a heart problem, all-consuming problem. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15. He said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. The source of sin, folks, is our hearts. It comes from inside. And it affects every bit of us. You heard me say this before. Tyler Johnson um, 
who's the lead pastor of Redemption, had this phrase years ago. He said, if, if, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs, right? To describe the totality of how sin affects us. There's not one good little piece of us. Sin affects everything because its source is what's inside. It's our, it's our heart. Now, let me add to this description of sin. Sin is stubborn and it's arrogant. Sin isn't just a being disappointed in God. It's war with God. That's what, that's what Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, hostile to God. Now, if you've been around for the last year and a half, uh, specifically when we studied through Romans chapter 1, there are four phrases I want to remind you of that describe the arrogance and the war and the conflict and the stubbornness that exists between our hearts and the God, okay? And this is what it says in chapter 1, verses 21. For although they knew God, watch this, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See the arrogance? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped the created things as opposed to the creator. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind that they would do what ought not to be done. And finally, verse 32, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only did that, but they applauded those who did that. That's the reality of this arrogance and stubbornness of the human heart. It's not just uh, being upset with some of the things God says. It's conflict. Here's how MacArthur says it. He says, sin is God's would-be murderer. Sin not only would unthrone God, it would un-God God. If the sinner had his way, there would be no God. In fact, he would be God. That's how far sin has affected us. Doesn't want anything to do with him. There's another part to sin. Sin is unthankful. Paul says in uh, Acts chapter 17, in God we live and move and have our being. That's the apostle's expression of, of the source of gratitude, that God is the giver of all good gifts. So let me ask you a really pragmatic question. Did you love Thursday? Maybe you need some time. I don't know. Thanksgiving. Did you love the day? Yeah. Did you love every bit of the day, all the things that came with it from family and food and all that stuff? Okay. Let me just remind you of what you should already know. God invented the turkey. (laughs) Mashed potatoes. He invented the taste buds that can even make sense of it and say that it's good. He gave the human mind, the creativity to invent the greatest sport the world has ever seen. (laughs) I got an applause for that one. He gave us such a mind that we can create a technology that can broadcast it on this thing called television and we can just sit around and watch it. He's the one that made family and relationships and gave us the freedom of a country that can sit around and say, God did this for us, we're thankful. God is good. He's the giver of all good things, right? But here's what sin does. Sin says, I'm not giving God anything. I'm not giving him thanks. The reality of Scripture says that God uh, is the creator of all things, and he sustains all that he creates with the word of his power. But he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. In fact, he treats us with grace, and yet sin complains. Sin forgets. Sin is what accuses God of being responsible for the bad things. And you've heard this said this way before. I know you have. If God was so loving, he wouldn't fill in the blank, right? 
That's the classic accusation against God. Although you're living and breathing and God should just deal with your sin right now, he lets it go on and your rebellion and your, your fist shaking at heaven and he lets you go on your way and yet we would say, God's responsible for the bad stuff. It has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with my kind. Sin is our rebellion. It's the cause of every evil in the world and it pervades every fiber of our being. It rejects God. It's ungrateful and it refuses to see itself as the issue. And we add on to this description of sin. Sin is also inoperable. <clears throat> in my lifetime, there have been a couple of diseases that, uh, for the most part, sounded like death sentences. AIDS would be one, and now Ebola would be another. But as horrible and uh, really difficult to treat as they are, there have been cases where, by hard work and good medicine, people have been rescued from those particular diseases, Right? So this is where the illustration breaks down. Sin has no cure. There's no amount of hard work or labor or good intentions or church going or prayers that can solve the problem of sin in our war with God. Nothing that we can do on our own, no matter of self-worth or self-effort can fix it, humanly speaking. The scriptures tell us in Romans 10 how pervasive it is that it's, it is uh, in us all. There is none righteous, not even one. Nobody understands. Nobody does good. And then I ran at this passage many, many years ago that just totally crushed me. Isaiah 64 that says, my righteous deeds are like filthy garments, filthy rags to God, meaning that the very best that I can offer, the very hardest work that I can do for him comes up way short to God's standard. That God's standard is perfection and holiness. And the best I can do, the best that any person could ever do would still come up way short to absolutely right because we're still tainted with selfishness and sin and greed and insecurity and idolatry and they can be nuanced and they can be small and they can even be accepted in our culture but they don't merit God's attention we all fall short every person who's ever lived the best that you can offer comes up short sin is inoperable you can't fix it sin is also opposed by God Psalm 45, David said, God loves righteousness and he hates, hates wickedness. In Psalm 5, he says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil can't dwell with you. Sin is the only thing that God has an eternal hatred for. He's never turning it off. It's forever. If he's going to be holy and true and right and good, then he can never be okay with sin, ever, at any level. He damns only those who say to God, no, thank you. To those who say to God, no, I, I've heard about Jesus, and I get that it's about the season. I understand all that, and I hear you talk about sin, that it so affects the heart, and we don't measure up to God's standard, but I'm going to choose to go it on my own. That stubborn thing that we mentioned before, that arrogance before God, although he knew what was right, he denied the truth. The only thing God damns is the person who says no thank you to God's provision. Which hopefully you'd see the side effect to that. That means he fully accepts the broken. People admit it. He, if, he uh, doesn't reject the poor or the simple or the outcast or the crippled. He doesn't reject the perpetually failing person who wakes up one day and says, I swear God, I swear it's starting today. I will never ever go back to that place only to go back to that place before the day is out. And he doesn't reject us. 
The only people that he wars with is sinners who say no to his provision, to the unrepentant. James 4 says God opposes the proud. The proud who says, um, I don't have a need that big. Who doesn't acknowledge God. So how can sinners get help? By the way, help they don't even, aren't even looking for. Well, that's the point of Christmas, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And sin isn't something you do, it's who you are, it's in your heart, it's what blinds your eyes and makes you incapable of seeing the problem clearly or, or sorting out the solution on your own. We need divine intervention. We need the Holy Spirit to take over our dead hearts and create life. That's what has to happen. That's what Christmas is all about. Let me go on to add to this story of sin. Sin is just too heavy. You can't carry it. Sin is just too heavy. If we look at it honestly, just look at the pain of it. I don't like this part. But look how it's affected us. Look at how it's affected the people that we love. Some people we don't even know, but we watch how it affects them and it hurts us. You know, the loneliness and the, the fear and the scars, like scars. Like people walking around with brutal stories and pain from what others have done to them. Sin, the, kind of the ricochet of sin in lives. Broken relationships, divorce, rejection. I've talked to too many people who carry with them this, this, this overwhelming burden of guilt and shame and embarrassment for where they've been and who they are. And they can't carry it. Or, or this, this insatiable appetite sin has. It's never enough. It's never, ever enough. You never go, well, if I get that, I'm going to stop there. Sin wants it all, and it wants more than you can even fathom. And it just keeps taking and requiring of you. And everybody I know with a sinful heart, which is everyone, just keeps on going. It never satisfies. Insatiable. So look how people cope with it everything but the cure. They medicate it, or they are convinced that it's my wife, or it's my husband, let me get a new one of those, and I'll work harder, I'll make more money, I'll buy this, I'll get stuff, I'll surround myself with the things I think will bring happiness and joy and solve this problem, only to find it doesn't do any of that. There is no fixing it, you can't carry it. The scriptures tell us who this sin affects, every one of us, for all of sin, according to Romans chapter 3. No one is the exception to the rule. In other words, the nicest person you could put on your list is this person. Next Friday, I go home to visit my folks for their 60th wedding anniversary. And my mom, who's about, she was five foot tall. She's now, I don't know, four, ten maybe. Um, she loves me, and she's a great lady. She's a great cook. She loves Jesus. But my mom's a sinner, just like I am. There isn't anybody who's unaffected by this. You can pick the nicest person and say, well, they need, maybe they need a little help, but they don't need a savior. Because look how nice they are. If you're sitting here as one of those people, or your, your um, argument to the gospel and what it provides is that you have this person who you're convinced has earned some favor from God, you're dead wrong. Because the Bible tells us that all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. Adam's, Adam's sin was passed to us as a people, no exceptions. So does it matter? You know, a, m a minute ago I told you about the characteristic of sin, that it's too heavy, right? 
the, the collateral damage of sin was just too huge. But let me just add to you the problem of sin. Um, as bad as it is, all of the uh, ways in which sin affects me isn't the worst part. Because the problem of sin is God. But there's a holy God who says that uh, you need to be holy. There's a lot of pain with sin, right? We're living outside of God's order, and so he knows, how, he knows his best. He made us, and he knows where joy is found, and we keep going the other way and thinking we know better, and that's bad. It has all the scars that come with that. But, but the reality of it is is that there's a problem of God with sin. God will not be mocked. He will not ignore sin, and he keeps great records on sin. And since we're all guilty, by the way, guess what happens to all men? If it isn't for help, we're going to be in trouble. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the whole world is held accountable to God. And then he goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, let me describe death. Everybody dies. That's part of the fall, part of the consequence of rebellion against God. But there's this other death, a spiritual death, a, a separation from God for all time and eternity in a place called hell and torment. Now, I'm not trying to kill your Christmas vibe. I'm telling you where your joy is going to come from is if you understand how bad sin is and the consequence of sin, then your joy, your celebration will be so, so much greater than any other time before because you're going to see what God has given to you in the gift of Jesus. There is a separation that the Bible describes even for us right now. So if you're one of those people on your own kind of own kind of study of your life says, I'm at war with God, or I'm at opposition to God, or I don't live for God's glory, and I'm not a Christian, then there's a term that we would say that describes you right now, that you're kind of separated. You don't know the Father. But as bad as that is, you still get the advantages of his kindness. For instance, you could have an ongoing conflict with God now. You can deny that he exists, but you're about to take another breath that he's in control of that he allows you to take. He's the one that said you can have fun last Thursday and enjoy family. He invented all that stuff. And you're going to probably get it. You probably have a great job that makes you a great income, and he's responsible for that. Every good thing comes from the Father in heaven. Every good thing. And people at war with God experience that benevolence, even though the Bible describes them as separated from God. They don't know of his joy or his purpose in their life. But watch this. If you were to die in your transgressions and sins, the, the, the separation becomes perfected. In other words, no more benevolence, no more kindness, no more graciousness. Whatever darkness is for the created being, being totally and absolutely separated from the creator who knows about joy and hope and peace, he removes it all in a place called torment in hell where God's wrath is poured out on, on sinners who rebel against his provision. And if you're one of those people who are just like John Mayer who are waiting on the world to change, let me break your little heart. Ain't going to happen. You're not going to get instinctively better and the world's not going to get better. They're not going to wake up next, tomorrow and say, hey, got the cure to racism and all the division and the wars in the world, we found it. We, we just needed this. No one's fixing it. It isn't going to get better. It won't change. Time, effort, money, politics aren't going to fix the problem. Sin will not be cured. It has to be atoned. It has to be atoned for. And that's the point of Advent. Jesus came to save sinners. Who, by the way, can't save themselves? And he's coming again to defeat sin, Satan, and death, to put a kind of a nail in that coffin.
When the reality of the gospel is that sin needs a payment because there's always a consequence for sin. And guess what God did? He, uh, he created a remedy for sin that is so perfect that he deals with sin in the most severe way imaginable. God becomes a man, takes on flesh, and he stores up and pours out every single drop of righteous, holy wrath and fury, all that unforgiveness and all of that, all that unrelenting wrath on his son Jesus for you and for me if we trust in Christ. That's the reality. God took the consequence. Jesus came to die for sinners. Amen? And, by the way, God's holiness is uncompromised because he kept his standard. Holy is my requirement. Jesus was. And, by the way, his justice is perfectly exacted because nobody gets away with anything. Every sin is either judged in hell forever or punished in Christ on the cross. Wrath is satisfied. All the holy right wrath towards rebellion against him is poured out on Christ. God's standard is met and love is revealed. The ultimate example of love goes on display in Christ for sinners. And sinners are saved from the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, of sin. So guess what the church gets to do? Because that wonderful truth is ours, we, we get to wait, W-A-I-T, on Jesus, right? I read a, a, a little phrase by Piper that helps us understand um, the totality of maybe this thought. Jesus didn't come to get us out of the doghouse. He came to get us out of the morgue. Because that's what sin says of us, that we're dead in our transgressions and sins and unresponsive to God at all. And so he came to give life to people who have no life, spiritually speaking. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. The wonderful story of the gospel, the good news that all this train wreck stuff that's going on in our world can be, can be cured by atonement. A sacrifice has to be paid. And so we're, we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about all these weights with concluding with grace, which is what we're talking about right now. I had uh, Neil send me an article this week. I want to finish with this. It's a little long, but we have a few minutes. So it was written by Ben Watson, who's a, uh, he's a, a tight end for the saints. And uh, he's responding to all the chaos in our world over this Ferguson thing, and he's got a couple of observations. Let me just read them to, to you. He's an African-American male living in New Orleans, watching this thing happen in his country. So he says this, I'm angry because the stories of injustice have been passed down for generations, seem to be continuing before my very eyes. I'm frustrated because pop culture, music, and movies glorify these types of police citizens altercations and promote an invincible attitude that continues to get young men killed in real life away from safe movie sets and music studios. I'm fearful because in the back of my mind, I know that although I'm a law-abiding citizen, I could still be looked upon as a threat to those who don't know me. So I will continue to have to go the extra mile to earn the benefit of the doubt. I'm embarrassed because the looting, violent protests, and law-breaking only confirm and in the minds of many validate the stereotypes that thus, that, um, thus the inferior treatment. I'm sad because another life has been lost from his family and the racial divide is widened, a community is in shambles, accusations, insensitivity, hurt, and hatred are boiling over, and we may never know the truth about what happened that day. 
I'm sympathetic because I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened. Maybe Darren Wilson acted within his rights and, and duty as an officer of the law and killed Michael Brown in the self-defense like any of us would in that circumstances. Now he has to fear the backlash against himself and the ones, his loved ones when he was only doing his job. What a horrible thing to endure. Or maybe he provoked Michael and ignited a series of events that led him to eventually murdering the young man to prove a point. I'm offended because of the insulting comments I've seen that are not only insensitive but dismissive to the painful experiences of others. I'm confused because I don't know why it's so hard to obey a policeman. You'll not win. I don't know why some policemen abuse their power. Power is a responsibility, not a weapon to brandish and lord it over a populace. I'm introspective because sometimes I want to take our side without looking at the facts in situations like these. Sometimes I feel like it's just us against them. Sometimes I'm just as prejudiced as people I point fingers at, and that's not right. How can I look at white skin and make assumptions but not want assumptions made about me? That's not right. I'm hopeless because I've lived long enough to ex expect things like this to continue to happen. I'm not surprised that at some point my little children are going to inherit the weight of being a, a minority and all that it entails. I'm hopeful. Because I know that while we still have race issues in America, we enjoy a much different normal than those of our parents and grandparents. I, I see in my personal relationships with teammates, friends, and mentors, and it's a beautiful thing. Now you've got to get his last paragraph. I'm encouraged. Because ultimately, the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we're racist prejudice and lie to cover our own. Sin is the reason we riot and loot and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for our sin through his son Jesus, and with it, a transformed heart and mind, one that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important to every human being. The cure for Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamar Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure, it's the gospel. So finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. Amen. The point of Christmas is that God came for sinners. And Jesus laid down his life so that we would go free. Free not only from having to live in a stuck way of selfishness and sin, but free to serve him and free from the condemnation that we rightfully deserve because he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's let that be the foundation as we get into this Advent season. This is why. This is why we worship. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for this season where we are so reminded of the blessings that we have and the ways in which you treat us. But God, let us not forget the point that you came for sin and sinners, that you made a perfect way a certain way for those who would repent of their sins and follow Christ, that they might be saved from their sin and the condemnation to come. My prayer is that we would be thankful. I pr my prayer is also for those who might have heard this for the first time, that they would trust in Christ and be saved. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.